indulge me for a moment of reading a hymn that has often been at many global outreach conferences over the years, have been sung. And it's entitled, We Have a Story to Tell to the Nations. We have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. And by right, the author is not speaking politically. He is speaking of right from wrong. Just wanted to throw that editorial comment in there. A story of truth and mercy, a story of peace and light, a story of peace and light. We have a Savior to show to the nations who the path of sorrow hath trod, that all of, world, that all of the world's great people might come to the truth of God, might come to the truth of God. Then the darkness shall turn to dawning, and the dawning to noonday bright, and Christ's great kingdom shall come to earth, the kingdom of love and light. Beloved, we have a story to tell to the nations, but this song unfortunately doesn't tell us the whole story, and because it fails to do so, we are left to think that we know what blanks to fill in what words or concepts or ideas or truths to share. However, I'm convinced that many of us do not. And what's more, I'm convinced that many, not all, but many even in the global outreach work, do not as well. Several weeks ago, I had the privilege of sitting in on some seminars by David and Paul Watson, who minister in the 1040 window, and many of you would know what I mean, by when I use that term. And one of the things that they have found over their years of ministry, and as they were sharing with us, mostly as, as Americans here in the U.S., about church growth and about planting churches, if you will, is that the people who want to come to your church are. Those who want to come to your church are coming. Um, and what, unfortunately, many ch churches have tried to do is to get people to do something they really don't want to do, and that is to come to your church. Because if they did, they would be here. But the fact of the matter is most do not want to be. Most do not see the need to be. What they need to hear is the message that will change their life, and that message that changes their life will compel them then, by virtue of that, to find fellowship with like-minded believers. As they went on to talk about the 1040 window and the people groups and the, the major religions in those areas, they reminded us of a fact, and it's a fact that I held, and they really pulled a bunch of pieces of the puzzle together for me, and that is this, is that most folks in many places don't mind talking about God. Many of them have a concept of God. In fact, in some cases, they may even have a higher view of God than most people in our own society have. So the problem isn't God. The problem is what we've exported too often while they're down the block across this country or across the world is we've exported American Christianity. We've exported a cultural Christianity as opposed to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they see, in many cases, a nationalistic Christianity, 
as opposed to a biblical Christianity, they reject it outright. Beloved, we have a story to tell to the nation. We have good news. Not good news that you can become an American. Not good news that you can be in a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Bible church or some conglomeration of all of those together. But good news that you can know the God of the universe that you can have a personal relationship with him and know that your shame and your guilt and your fear have been dealt with through the cross of Jesus Christ. As J.R. Packer said, what was this good news that Paul preached? It was the news about Jesus of Nazareth. It was the news of the incarnation, the atonement, and the kingdom, or as one put it, the cradle, the cross, and the crown. The story we are to tell to the nation simply is a message of Christ crucified, a message of man's sin. And when we say man's sin, we mean mankind, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, black and red and yellow and white, and of all languages and of all ethnicities. And that God's grace is a message of human guilt and divine forgiveness, is a message of new birth and new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so to help try to make this memorable or easier to remember, there's really just four points to the message this morning, and those are what comprise your outline for you. And the first thing we need to keep in mind as we share this story, that it is a story about God. And again, most people anywhere in the world, anthropologists have demonstrated it, they will admit every culture has a concept of God. But the question is, what God are we speaking of? And we have a couple of passages I want us to look at this morning. First is Acts 13 and then Acts 17. And you can turn there if you want, because I'm only going to hit parts, parts of these passages. Uh, but what, what these do is they present God as creator. A God who, by his character, is just and graceful and merciful and sovereign and holy and good. One who judges iniquity. This is the God who sees and hears and acts. He can't be fully fathomed, but he can be known as he reveals himself, as he says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. So here in Acts 13, we see Paul speaking to a group of Jews. And one of the things, if we had time to develop just this passage and the one in Acts 17, you would notice that Paul starts with these people from two different starting points. It's about the same God, but he approaches it from two different points. And obviously he does this with the Jews. He doesn't start with Genesis and present a creator because in this day and age, in this time, being people of the book, the Older Testament, they would have understood this creator that he's speaking of. And so Paul, what he does is he deals with their history. He deals with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he gives them, if you will, a primer or a reintroduction of the history of their own people to demonstrate that, in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in his seed, all the nations, all the nations, not political entities, but the ethnos, the Gentiles. So Jew and Gentile would be blessed in Abraham. And he seeks to demonstrate from the Old Testament Scripture 
that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and in fact is declared by his death, by his resurrection, that he is, in fact, the Son of God. So we move over into chapter 17, and Paul is going to talk with a group of Greeks there on Mars Hill in Athens. And his logical starting point with them, and I invite you to turn there because we are actually going to look at that passage. Paul approached him and he says, I see that you are a, a religious people. You have, temples, you have temples and altars everywhere. And I notice you have an altar to the unknown God. That's the one I want to explain to you. I, I want to explain this God to you. This is the one whom we worship, and him I will proclaim. And notice in verse 24 of Acts 17, he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he is made from one blood, speaking of Adam and Eve here, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for him and find him, though he's not far off from each one of us. Why? For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art in man's devising. Truly these times, these times of stone and gold and silver and temples, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, commands all men and women everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he ordained. And he has given assurance of this to us all by raising him from the dead. So with the Greeks and with those who have a multitude of gods, Paul started at the beginning so it would make sense. What God... Are we talking about which God are you referring to? And he says, this unknown God that you're just trying to cover your bases, let me explain to him, this God is the one and only true God. He is creator, he is redeemer, and he is judge. And he's appointed a day, and he's appointed a man. And we know he has, Paul says, because he died and he raised him from the grave so that repentance and the forgiveness of sins might be preached to all people, that all would know that this God loved them so much that he gave someone to take their place to pay for their penalty. And as you note here, and when they heard this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And there were those who believed, some who believed. This God is both eminent, Paul says, and he is transcendent. 
He is transcendent in the sense that you cannot fully comprehend him. But unlike some who teach that you cannot know God, Paul, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the writers of Scripture indicate God says he can be known as he reveals himself. So this God who we cannot comprehend, we don't know how when he spoke he just created the world, it came into existence, the one who does miracles, the one who raises kings and lowers kings, this God can be known. He wants us to know him. And he's appointed a day to do that. And so as Will Mesker has said, the gospel starts by teaching us that we as creatures are absolutely dependent on God and that he as creator has absolute claim on us. How unlike some tracts would say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you ever thought of sharing with somebody, you know something, God is creator, you are a creature, he created you, you owe him your allegiance. That probably would create just a little bit of static with the person you're talking to. But beloved, that is the truth. He is the creator, and we are creatures. And because he created, we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our worship and obedience. He has the right to demand it. And yet so often we present it as though it's just one of many options. Oh, yeah, I realize people can reject it. I I understand that. But they need to be faced or braced, as they would say in the old cowboy terms, braced with the fact that he is who he is. Therefore, he has a right to say to you, repent and believe. He has that right as the Lord God of the universe. And so only when we have learned this, as Metzger says, can we see what sin is. And only when we see what sin is can we understand the good news of salvation from that sin. We must know what it means to call God creator before we can grasp what it means to speak of him as our redeemer, end quote. So first and foremost, this story is a story about God. Not one of many gods, but the God of the universe, our creator, our sustainer, the one who gives us life. Secondly, it is a story about sin. Romans, if you go a few more pages past Acts, to the book of Romans. Romans 3, and we'll spend some time here as well. Paul says this in Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? What then? Having talked to the, to the Jews, to the, the moralist in their group, and showing how that even a Gentile who doesn't have the law, but when he does the things of the law, really has a law unto themselves, and you who have the covenants, but you don't obey him, what, what, what profit is that to you? So he sums it all up here in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. In this case, for those of you who may be uninitiated, that is also a broader statement to refer to all Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, and remember, anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. Okay, that, that may come as news to somebody here. But if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. There's only two groups of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. That's it. Okay? Now, in the Gentiles, there's a lot of different people groups, a lot of different colors. I understand that. But there are really only two people in God's eyes, Jews and, Greek, Jews and Gentiles. And so here we are. 
They are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of their way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, a grave. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so just so we don't miss this, over in chapter 3, verse 23, he says this. For all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our nature is revealed. We are not inherently good. We are depraved. We are not as bad as we can be. Okay? In a room this size, this many people, on a scale of 1 to 300, somebody might be at 300 and somebody might be at 1, but the point he's making is all of us are sinners. That's his point. We can't escape it. We're not as bad as we can be, but we're as bad off as we can be. And beloved, as many of you know, and it might even be to some of you here, that is not popular. And it's not universally believed either. We are, as R.C. Sproul likes to say, cosmic rebels against a holy, righteous God. But it's not enough just to tell people that they are sinners or to show them that they are. They must be, and there should be a conviction of sin. And that begins with understanding that we are separated from this holy, righteous creator God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your sin has separated you from your God, and your iniquities has hidden his face from you. We are separated because of sin. And you know, and I know, especially as we live in this place where there's so much wonderful recreation, that people are looking for something. Something is missing in their life. And it might be pleasure. It might be work, it might be play, it might be wealth, it might be power, it might be education. There are those who are looking for freedom from sin and shame and guilt and fear. They are looking and they know they need something. And I'm here to tell you or remind you, it comes from the fact that we are separated from God. That is why Augustine said 1,700 years ago, Our soul is restless till it finds its rest in thee, O Lord. We will always look, we'll always eat more, we'll always drink more, we'll always want more money, whatever it might be, to fill the void that can only be filled by this God. And they need to be able to see that. It is because they are separated from him. And here, unfortunately, is where we often fail in telling the story. We too often depict people as needing and Christ is supplying that need or meeting that need. We see our sin as shortcomings or foibles or failures instead of what it is, rebellion against a holy God. We present God or Jesus as the one who meets our felt needs and our wants. Are you sad? Jesus will make you happy. Do you want peace? Jesus will give you peace. Feeling like a failure? Do you need a friend? Can't figure things out? You can't understand life? Then turn to Jesus. He will be your friend. He will make you happy. He will meet your needs. He will take care of your sin. 
Beloved, the reason this seems to work and sounds good is to a degree it is true that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Luke 19.10, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said that at the house of Zacchaeus, a noted and infamous tax collector. He does bring peace and joy. John 10, 10, he said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. That is full and purposeful and meaningful. So that is true. He does take care of sin. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son to die for us. So that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish for all eternity, but have eternal life. But he isn't Dr. Phil, Joel Osteen, or the Partridge family. Okay? It isn't get on, get on the bus and let's be happy. It's not what this is about. It's about coming and bringing newness of life to you and me. It's not that he can't meet needs, but your greatest need isn't that you need someone to love you. You need the someone to love you. It isn't that you have loneliness. You have loneliness because you're separated from God who wanted a relationship with you in the first place. But your sin and my sin broke that relationship. So your need, your greatest need, is not the people around you. It's not your job. It's it's not pleasure. It's not politics. It's not money. Your greatest need is to know him, to be rightly related with him. Those other things are tools or maybe part of the whole program, but the greatest need is to know him. And it's hard when you're separated from him. Most do not understand that they are alienated from God. The scripturally it says they are enemies of God. There's enmity between them and God. And they are by nature children of wrath. They need reconciliation. They don't need Dr. Phil. Which leads us to another facet. That we are guilty of sinning and of sins. Not just that we have sinned, I've done a couple of things, but know that we are guilty of sins. Not just X, Y, Z, but of lying and cheating and exhorting and loving our sins, sins of the flesh, greed, gossip, anger, hatred, murder, whether physical or verbal. We are guilty. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we are dead in trespasses, note the plural, in sins, plural, disobedient, conducted in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And what has resulted in that? There is shame when we are exposed for what we are. There is fear of retribution and loss of relationship with parent or family or our community. There is guilt. And beloved, sometimes you don't have to feel guilty to be guilty, right? I mean, if you go down, uh, you come up to the traffic light out here on uh, 19th, and you're going to turn right, and the, the light's red, you still have to stop. Right? That may be news to some of you. And there's a few of you who I won't point you out this morning who I know must be news to you because I've seen you not stop. Okay? I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm just saying we can do things and not even think anything of it, especially here in Montana. Remember? Why, reasonable and prudent. Remember that? So they, we were so reasonable, so prudent, they had to decide to set it at 75, right? And I love to tell the story, and I don't, I don't know if he, one of them's here in, in this morning, he'd be in a second service, but guys who just had the privilege of ministering to over in Wilsall when they were young men, 
Their, their dream was they're going to graduate from high school, they're going to buy a Lamborghini, and they're going to go on a cross-country road trip. And, I, and that's when the speed limit was still 55. Some of us can still remember that. Some of you are too young to remember those days. And I said, guys, do you see any problem with buying a Lamborghini? And they said, no. And I said, well, tell me about your, your car. Well, you know, yeah, he goes so fast, and he does this, and it does that. And I said, so you're going to drive at 55? Oh, Pastor Dave. Oh, <laughs> no, no, you can't. That's a high-performance car. You've you got to drive that thing, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour, because that's when it really purrs. I said, so let me see if I understand this correctly. You guys are going to buy a car, take it cross-country, a car that you know you're going to have to break the speed limit laws in all 50 states in order to really drive it at its maximum performance. Yeah. Do you see any problem with that? It, it finally took a few minutes, because again, they were teenage boys, right? Teenage young men. And they finally said, oh, yeah. And they said, yeah. You know, you buy your Lamborghini. How fun, okay? But so often, we do things, and we don't feel guilty. Oh, I should feel guilty. And when we find out, you know, that's wrong. It's sin against a holy, righteous God. So you can be guilty without even feeling guilty. But we have a classic example in Scripture where all three of these things, fear, shame, guilt, and that's in Genesis 3. Remember? Adam and Eve sinned. And he's, we're, 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 they looked at each other and go, oh, their eyes were open. They realized that they didn't have any clothes on. So they made garments for themselves, Right? And they heard the voice of the Lord, and they hid. And he said, where are you? Why have you hid? He said, well, we were afraid. We heard your voice. See, there's shame, and there's fear, and there's guilt. In a very third chapter, the very first book in the Bible. And that covers just about every person everywhere in the world. And you and I must be rid of it and turn from it. Because that's what sin will do. It will shame us. It will make us feel guilty. And it should, and it will create fear in our heart. And that covers just about everyone. But there should also be a conviction that our very core, we are sinners. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 again says, dead in trespass, disobedient, conducted ourselves by nature, our very nature, children of wrath. That's why David in Psalm 51 said, My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression, my sin. I have sinned and done evil in your sight. I was born a sinner. Purge me. Wash me that I might be cleansed. And beloved, in this day and age, as you know, many people don't like to hear that. So you need to just try the Ray Comfort. Some of you have uh, looked at that the way of the Master and uh, read or heard tapes or videos of Ray Comfort, and he likes to use the Ten Commandments. And he'll talk to somebody, you know, are you a sinner? Well, yeah, you know, I've done some things, but, you know, but I'm, I'm really not that bad. Or really? Well, let me ask you, have you ever lied? Well, no, I'm not classified as a liar. Are, are you a thief? No, I'm not classified as a thief. Have you ever murdered anybody? No. Are you an adulterer? No. He says, okay, let me ask you this question then. When you were a kid, did you ever steal any cookies when your mother said not to take any cookies before supper? Well, yeah, I, I guess it kind of did. And so when she asked you, did you do like the little boy that was just here on, on the internet here this last week? You know, Johnny, did you, did you eat those sprinkles? I don't know how many of you saw that. Uh-uh. He's got sprinkles all over his face. Nope, ma, that was me. And she comes over and half the jar, the sprinkles are gone. Are you sure? There's sprinkles on the counter, sprinkles on the floor. No, I, I, uh, no, it wasn't me. Okay. 
You've, you've, never, uh, you've never talked bad about anybody? Well, yeah, yeah, I guess I did. Okay. And uh, have you ever lusted for anybody, whether you're male or female? Have you ever looked at somebody and go, whoa, you ever done that? Well, yeah, I guess I have. So he said, let me see if I get this right. You're a living, thieving, murdering adulterer, but you've never broken any of the commandments. See, beloved, it gets right to the heart of it. We might look at it and we say, this guy who's in the paper, who murdered 10 people, now he's bad. He's bad. And I will admit, I'd rather have you murder me with your tongue than shoot me with a gun. Okay. I mean, just so we have that taken care of. So no one comes in or shoots me sometime. Right? But what did Jesus say in Matthew 5 about our words? About murdering someone's reputation. What did he say regarding, he said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. You see, it's a hard issue. We like to look out here, but it's hard to look in here. And so this is who we are at our, our very base nature. And that is some very bad news, isn't it? What's your up? It gets worse. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Death. Spiritual separation from God, and if we depart this world apart from his work, all eternity will be separated from him. So, I think you get the picture. I think you can see how bad the bad news is. So what is the good news? The good news is for you who are sin-sick, guilty, shamed, fearful, that it is a story about Christ, the merciful Redeemer. Go back with me to the book of Acts. And we're going to go to Acts and Philippians and some other passages here. But Peter, on that day of Pentecost, as he is preaching to those who have come up to the feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, he makes this incredible statement after they're wondering about this Holy Spirit, wondering if these guys are drunk because they're hearing this commotion. And Peter says, no, 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 we're, we're not drunk. This is, this is that. This is, this is the Davidic fulfillment of what Joel said the promise of a spirit being poured out. And so we come into to the latter part of chapter 2, verse 36. And he says this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Philippians 2, 5, Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be used to his advantage, but he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He humbled himself by becoming a man, taking on the limitations of a man, being hungry and thirsting and crying, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a shameful death, a death that would mark him as one being shamed, accursed, of God, but not because he had sinned, but because we had sinned and we owed a debt we couldn't pay, so he paid a debt for us and frees us from that sin and that shame and that guilt and that fear. This one is the incarnate, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. This is the Son of Man who came to seek and save that which is lost. This is the risen Savior, victorious over sin and death and hell. And this is the coming King who will come someday in his kingdom with his angels to judge the quick and the dead. 
But, beloved, there's a danger in this. So often people preach one aspect of Christ. They preach him in such a way as only to paint half of the picture, tell half of the story. We must remember the truth and the doctrine of both his person and his work. Both are precious. Both are necessary in order for people to be saved. And I might add, keeping these two in perspective might keep us from falling into the air of easy beliefism or legalism. His person, simply put, he is Savior and Lord, as he says here in Acts. In 1631, when the Philippian jailer comes in and falls before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And so this one is the Lord and the Christ. He's the Son of God. And as offensive as it may sound to some, he is God the Son I find it incredible that some places in the world people will tell you that it's not not right. It's blasphemous for us to say that there are limits on God. For example, we would say God cannot be illogical. Why? Because he's a God of logic. God can't tell a lie and tell the truth. That's that's a contradiction. God doesn't contradict himself. And I've heard from other people say, well, wait, that's blasphemy because you're you're limiting God. My response to this is if if you're limiting God, who are you to tell me God can't become a man? Where's the limit? If God can do whatever he can do, as some teach, God can't become a man? Angels can. How come God can't? It's not preposterous to think that God became a man, dwelt among us, lived as one of us, and died, though he did not need to die, willingly died as a man, in order to save men and women from their sin. He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the great high priest. He's the atonement, the sin bearer, the chief good shepherd, the bishop of our souls. That is his person. That is who he is. That is part of the message. It's not all the message, but it's part of the message. The second thing is his work. 2 Corinthians 5.18, he made him, as God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he says in Romans 6, 23, the second part of the verse, while the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not in this, not in this, not in this, not in keeping the Ten Commandments, not in keeping in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could say in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And over in 8.1, when he can say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not those who are American, not those who are Canadian, not those who are from the West. Those, whoever they may be, who are in Christ. No, no condemnation because of what he has done. Jesus knows no racial boundaries. He knows no ethnic boundaries. He knows no political boundaries or financial boundaries. The the sinner who repents, turns from their sin to Christ, will be known by him. And there there will no longer be condemnation. That's why Paul could tell us in Ephesians 2, 5 and 9, He, that is God, made us alive in Christ by grace through faith alone. Or in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, at the right time, God, <clears throat> excuse me, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, 
and he has sent in our hearts the Spirit. Or John 19, when he says, it is finished, to tell us it is paid in full, and it is still paid in full to this day. Or Colossians 1, 13 and 14, where it says, God transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son, whom he loved. And then he tells us in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he took all the requirements of the law of sin, and he nailed them, having nailed them, and they are still nailed to Don't forget the the perfect tense there. Nailed to the cross. He has written an X through it. It is dealt with once and for all. So the person and the work of Christ cannot be separated. If you cannot receive him as Lord, how can you understand him as Savior? And he is not a Lord that just lays down a list. He is a Lord that says, come to him in faith. Come to him in humility. Turn from your sin and turn to him. And that leads us to our our final point. It is a story that calls for a decision. Luke 17, 30. Repent. John 6, 29. Jesus said, when he was asked, what work do we do to do the works of God? He said, this is God's God's work. Believe on him who he sent. That's it. That's the main work. Believe on me. Acts 10.43, Cornelius and his household. Revelation 22.17, John 3.16, whosoever believes. It's not faith or repentance, it's both. Faith isn't just intellectual assent. It's also an issue of emotion and will. Faith is essentially the casting and resting of oneself and one's confidence on the promise of mercy which Christ has given to sinners and on the Christ who gave those promises. Years ago, John Patton, when he was in the New Hebrides Islands, translating scripture, was trying to find the word to translate for faith. The language of the people did not have a word for faith. And one day his helper came in and he sat down in a chair and said, Ah, it is good to rest all my being in this chair. That's the translation of the word. And a light went on in Patton's head, that's the word. Because it depicts truthfully and faithfully what the word faith means. It is arresting my entirety in Christ. That's what it is. I I trust in him, in him alone. I give him myself. I fall into him, and he catches me. Like the chair, he holds me up. That is true trust and faith. And there's repentance. As Packer would say, repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart. A new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. Or in the words of Dr. Earl Rodmacher, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Or consider Martin Luther, the first theses in the 95 Theses, as it is said historically, that he nailed to the door in Wittenberg. The very first thesis says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And beloved, that's what it is. 
That's what it is. Preaching the gospel means inviting sinners to come to Jesus Christ, the living Savior, who by virtue of his atoning death is able to forgive and save all those who put their trust, rest their weight in him. What has to be said about the cross when preaching the gospel is simply that Christ's death is the ground on which Christ's forgiveness is given. Beloved, in this day and age, we have, especially in the West, especially this part of the West, not the American West, but America as a representative of the West, we have been preoccupied with how to grow churches and fill pews without offending anyone, or clearly defining who we are and what we believe. We've taken this other gospel, and then we've tried to export it overseas, and then we wonder why it isn't working, and why people hate us, and they hate the message. It's because we've not given the clear message. It's my contention, and it's time we stop exporting Christian culture and American Christianity, and take the story, the true story of Jesus and his love to the nations. That story doesn't need Hollywood. It doesn't need lights and loud music. It doesn't need slick promotion. Beloved, it simply needs to be told and lived out. And guess what? Many will still hate us, and many will still hate that message, but there will be some who will hear and who will count it gain even if they lose their family, this world, and lose their life. It will be something worth dying for. Because they're not dying for us. They're not dying for our politics. They're not dying for our worship style. They are dying for Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We have a story to tell to the nations. My questions to you this morning as we close are simply are this. Do you know the story? Do you know it? Not just think you, do you know the story that it's about our Creator God? It's about the fact that we don't just sin, we are sinners at heart. That there is an answer to that, and that answer is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And that everyone is faced with the decision for or against Jesus Christ. That is our message to take to the nation. Can you tell it? Can you tell it to your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate? Can you tell it across the state, across the globe? Are you willing to go and tell it? Because that's really all we have to offer is that message in a life that backs it up. That's what missions, that's what global outreach is all about. That story in a life that's been changed by that story. Father, we come this morning and there are so many competing voices for for people's hearts around the world. Some are told if we only follow this way, if we only do this, 
If we pray this certain way, if we act a certain way, if we do these certain things, if we use these certain words, we worship this whatever it might be, <clears throat> we have so complicated and made unnecessarily at times offensive something that really is not the story. It really is a simple story that there is a Creator God who is all-powerful, who is holy, who is righteous, who judges, but who is gracious and merciful as well. And he saw the plight. He sees the need. He sees the human heart. <clears throat> and he knows. And because he loves so greatly, he wants to write that. He is working to bring men and women, boys and girls of all colors, of all nations, to himself so they might know him and enjoy him and worship him. And so it's a story of revealing who we are, that we are sinners separated from you. And it's a story about the merciful Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly came. He said, I delight to do thy will. And he came. Though he didn't have to, but he came because he wanted to. And he gave himself. He paid the price for us. Even while we cursed him, even while we disobeyed him, even when we maybe hated and persecuted his people who believe in you, he still died for us. And he offers eternal life as a free gift, not to be earned, but to be accepted by faith. If all oh, that faith isn't just another notch, it isn't just something else to add to our collection, it is a faith that will transform the sinner's life. It will begin to take the spots off the leopard and change that person into the image to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. Father, help us to understand the message better, to live the message better, and then to share that message better with our family and friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, and around the world so that truly, as we see in Revelation, will be fulfilled people from every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing before you in worship. May it be, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.